everyone. Welcome to Evil Pudding, a true crime podcast, episode 54. I'm your host, Courtney. And I'm Patrick. Why are you looking at me funny? Because I forgot how to do this. Because <laughs> we took a week off yeah. and it makes... <laughs> it's like a bicycle. <laughs> what are you doing? Yeah, I don't know. How are you, Patrick? I don't want to go into too many details. I'm good. Okay. We'll just go ahead and say you're good. <laughs> I got accused of talking too much on these episodes. Oh my gosh. You take I'm kidding. I don't take it seriously. I always just make a joke. You take about our reviews so I always just make a joke about it. Like it's, obviously we're not for everybody, but no, I'm good. I'm good. It's been a pretty decent week. Good. I'm glad. How are you? I'm okay. I'm hanging in there. Okay. It's a busy time of year, but holy crap, is it busy? I'm happy to be here and um have a little true crime distraction here for a second or two. Yeah, it's about as busy as it gets for us right now. So, yeah, we're making it work though. We're we're pumping out the episodes, even though we missed last week. Yeah, I mean, we are. We're still getting her done. Get her done. <laughs> Get her done. But you're gonna like this episode this week, Pat. I think. Are you excited? I am. Are you ready to kind of hop into it? You don't have any business to take care of. No, there's no real business. Okay, we're good. We're good. Well, it's a lengthier one, so we'll go ahead and get into it. Let's do it. So in August of 2005, Hurricane Katrina, one of the worst natural disasters to ever strike the U.S., devastated the Gulf Coast. I remember it well because personally I was living in Louisiana at the time. This was um, BP before Pat. Yeah. And, <laughs> and my daughter was an infant. I mean, months old. It's yeah, crazy. Pretty much. And my family had to evacuate. It was awful. We were lucky. Other people had it much worse. My family and I often discussed that time in our lives. And recently, my dad asked me, he was like, hey, do you remember that serial killer in Louisiana that was active during the hurricane? And my mind went directly to Derek Todd Lee. I don't know if you've heard of him, but he was a serial killer. I don't I don't know if he was active during the hurricane, but he was active that year. No, I had no idea who um, he targeted women. Go figure. Yeah. Uh, my dad was like, no, it wasn't Derek Toddley. He couldn't think of the name. Um, but he said there was another one that didn't get as much press, but it killed more people. And I was like, who is this guy? So I being curious, <laughs> went and looked up active serial killers in Louisiana during 2005 and sure enough, my search brought me to someone that I think very few people have heard of Okay, for whatever reason. He was known as the Bayou Killer. Some called him the Bayou Strangler. I think I've heard that name before. And his name is Ronald Dominique. I mean, I don't know that name. Yeah. So he's a man single-handedly responsible for the brutal rape and murder of 23 men 23, from 1997 to 2006. Okay. And with his dumpy five-foot-five frame and his ability to keep to himself and just kind of no one notice him, the unassuming Ron Dominique was able to rape and kill without assumption, going unnoticed throughout rural Cajun country as he left a trail of bodies in his wake. So, so devoted to his sick craft that not even a natural disaster of biblical proportions could stop him. So today, my friends, let's discuss the case of the Bayou Killer 
And warning, guys, this episode just deals with a bunch of very triggering topics. No. Such as sexual assault, incest, the works. Every one of our episodes does. So let's get right into it. All right, let's do it. So Ron, as we will call him for the rest of this episode, it's just easier. He was born in the small Louisiana Louisiana town of Thibodeau on January 9th, 1964. Old Thibodeau. And can I just tell you how excited I am to finally have an episode where I can pronounce the words (laughs) in my sentence? That's funny, too, because... There's like one part of the world or the Americas that you can, the America, the America, the America, the America. There's one part of America that you can actually pronounce that no one else can. And that's Louisiana places because you're from Louisiana and Cajun. So well, I'm not of, from there, but I spend a lot of time. Well, your there. family's from there. My your family dad's is. entire side of the family's from there. And it's like most of us stumble through the names over there and you just mock us. Like, how do you not know how to say that? I'm like, how do you know how to say Steve that? Yeah. He had one older sister and. He was just a very awkward, shy, kind of unremarkable kid who lived a very, I guess, unremarkable childhood for the most part. Aside from the fact that his mother was having a sexual relationship with her own brother, Ron's uncle. Ew. Very much ew. I'm unclear how old Ron was when this event occurred. But one day, Ron's father brought him and his sister to their uncle's house, and they all discovered their mother in bed with her brother. Yuck. So the dad brought his two kids over. I don't know if it was to catch her in the act or if he was just going to go visit his (laughs) brother-in-law. Either way, that's pretty traumatizing for kids. So right then and there, I think that the notion of sex was perverted in a young Ron's mind, you know? And anytime we see a serial murderer who has a mother that can be perceived as anything less than, I don't want to say pious, but not angelic and saintly, you know, uh, it's not always a good thing. Our mothers are supposed to kind of be a beacon of. Yeah, but at the same time, just because. They're still they're people, perfect, obviously. Like, obviously. Moms aren't perfect. Compared but to other serial killers we deal with, they do their mothers like, you know, pimping them out when they're six years old, beating them. Yeah. Torturing them. If that's what she does, I mean, that's not, we don't agree with it, obviously, but that's mild. We hold a lot of power. It's a good, you hold a lot of power, but you're also human beings. You make mistakes and you dumb shit. Absolutely. Just don't sleep with your brother. That's not good. I'm not saying that yet. After, (laughs) after puberty, Ron quickly discovered that he was different from everyone else. He was in fact homosexual. And since he lived in rural Louisiana in the 1970s, there was no coming out of the closet Mm -mm. in high school, at least. He hid his attraction to other young men and withdrew more and more inward, if that was even possible, during the high school years. In fact, he would be best described as a loner without many, if any, friends. Sounds about right. After high school, Ron was more open about his sexuality, however. He began to frequent the gay bars around New Orleans, and this is sad, but unfortunately, he was just so odd and unlikable and he complained about everything, that he didn't even find his place there either. They didn't even accept him. He just seemed to be a miserable little person, you know? And we all know somebody like that. Say, he's like Debbie Downer. Like, he's, he's very just, much just Debbie Downer. Nothing's good enough. Nothing's right. They don't right. accept him. I mean, they accept him for, you 
you know, his homosexuality and stuff in those places, but they're like, dude, I don't want to be around you. You're just like the guy that brings the life down. You bring everything down. Like, And really interesting fact, Ron loved drag queens and loved to like watch them perform. Well, he decided to try his hand at becoming a drag queen. And I saw a documentary about him and I forgot who he portrayed. It was like, I don't know. It was some big star and I can't remember her name. It was like Tina Turner or something. That was his favorite. Don't quote me on that. But by all accounts, he was awful. I imagine like all these talented people coming out and performing and then like getting a round of applause. And then he comes out and he does his whole spiel and then just crickets because <laughs> he was just unlikable, you know? So his unlikable personality did not make him popular in the club scene at all. He just couldn't find acceptance anywhere. Makes sense. On June 12th, 1985, at the age of 21, Ron had his first brush with the law. And it's not what you think. <laughs> he wasn't charged with a violent crime, but rather, and this was actually a charge, I guess. Uh, he was charged with telephone harassment. He was really obsessed with prank calling people. Yeah. It came up, telephone harassment became a thing, especially back in that time period when it had like every, 70s, 80s. When everyone yeah. had a phone in their house. Yeah. Much like nowadays where they're coming up with all these cyberbullying laws and all this. Fair enough. Because that's the way that people are, you know, it's the newest technology and that's what people are using to intimidate or not even, even intimidate, just fuck with others. Harass people. Yeah. So they had to come up with laws for it. It's just funny that that was his first crime and then you, you hear about all these serial killers like torturing kittens. And then Ron's like, I just prank called and got charges for it. Yeah, but that's they got to start somewhere, right? They don't always have to start in the middle. They can start. Right. They can start with speeding tickets. It doesn't matter. He was dipping his toe in one way or the other. But his next run-in with the law was a bit more foretelling of his future career as a serial killer. I will say this. It's a big leap from prank calling, okay? So eight years after the prank calling charge, uh, it was in 1993. Alone and unable to form a consensual relationship with anyone, Ron Dominique decided to take what he desired by force. A young drifter one day called the police and claimed that Ron had picked him up under the ruse of making a drug deal. I'm kind of shortening the story down a little bit. So once the pair was in Ron's apartment, Ron effectively locked the man in the bathroom, handcuffed him, and raped him at gunpoint. After Ron was finished, he had the young man get dressed. He was like, get out. Go. Well, Ron was arrested and thrown behind bars while he awaited his trial. However, the young man who had accused him of rape was a drifter, and there was um, nowhere, he was nowhere to be found once the uh, day of trial arrived. And without a victim, the case against Ron was dropped for lack of evidence. And Ron was a right. free man, unfortunately. Well, yeah, I mean, you can't prosecute someone in a victim. He raped crime, somebody. A crime but with, it's a victim of a crime. Right. There's no victim to talk about it. There's no There's crime. no crime, effectively. So you see it all the time with, like, murders and stuff like that. There's no body. Yeah. There's technically no victim. And quick trigger warning for this next part. This, this is kind of, I'm going to kind of hit you with the left hook here. Okay, we're just, okay. Ooh, we're not even taking our time. During his time behind bars, so he wasn't in prison, he was in jail. While he was awaiting trial. And he was there for a while. I can't remember how long I heard he was in jail for, but he was there for a while. Well, he claimed that while there, he was routinely gang raped by other inmates. In fact, so 
violently that his rectum had collapsed and he needed surgery for it. This trauma led Ron to vow that he would never go back to prison. And I'm not talking about like he's willing to walk the straight and narrow in order to stay out of jail. No, he's not going to leave anyone a victim. He's not going to leave any victim alive ever again. So they, they can turn him in. Yeah, he's not in the right because, state of mind. Because dead men tell no tells, right? Right. He's not in the right state of mind where he's like, oh, I don't ever want to try this again. No, he's right. like, no, I'm still going to do what I want, but I'm just right. going to get caught. Exactly. And that brings us to 19-year-old David Mitchell, Ron's first victim. There's going to be a lot of victims. I wanted, if I didn't go into detail of every um, victim's lives, I wanted to at least mention their names. Okay. So I mean, you're yeah, going to hear a lot of names. I was but, about to ask you, are we going to, are we going to detail all 23 in detail, or are we just going to brush on some and touch on some of the others? I'm going to give you kind of a general overview because he definitely has an MO, right? Right. And it could get very repetitive without, I don't want to seem disrespectful. Yeah, and that, that, was, but, my, that was my question because yeah. some of these guys, like, I don't know the story, but some of them tend to have the same MO and they do the same thing over and it's, over again. It never, it never varies until kind of the, I think of his crimes kind of like in, there was a halftime. And then there's the second half of the game. That's when, that's when the game changes. And that's when the game changes and we'll kind of go into his MO changing a little bit. Right. But, but I definitely wanted to name all the victims. I was going to say, but to your point, we always want to bring credit, not in a credit, but awareness to victims. Right. They have we tell names. these stories yeah. not for the everyone to know about the bad person. Right. We really tell the stories and stuff like that to remember the people that suffered at the hands of these people. Right. We're not Absolutely. here to glorify the killer. We're here and to- especially because his victims, they were all made out to be less than desirable people for whatever reason. And that's just not wholly the case. You no, know, I mean, he's probably, I, I, these I are don't know kids. this guy, he's, but he's probably targeting homeless vag- vagabonds, runaways, you know, drug addicts, probably in the gay community, which is probably shunned somewhat in the nineties. You know, that's what was thought. And it, and it just, it wasn't always like that. I mean, okay. some of, some of them, you know what you'll see. Yeah. I was, I'm guessing. I'm I don't go too far. They were, but they were definitely kind of all lumped into one category. And I wanted to kind of, Shed a little light on the okay. truth. Okay. Let's do it. Anyways, his first victim, 19 year old, just 19, David Mitchell. The last time David's family saw him alive was during a family birthday celebration on July 13th, 1997. Now, although people like to say that Ron Dominique's victims, like we were saying, were all drifters or all homeless, that's not true for all of them. Okay. David had a good job at St. Charles Parish Hospital, and when he failed to show up for work one day, his boss called his mother because David was always late. If he was on time, he was late. Right. You know, he was punctual. He loved his job. Never missed work. One of those Exactly. He would have just never not shown up for work, at least without calling, right? Well, David's mother, extremely worried, immediately called his sister, whom David lived with at the time. And his sister informed her that she hadn't heard from her brother, and he had also left his work ID and hospital uniform behind. Something's wrong, right? Right. All of the Mitchell's family fears came to fruition, and this is insane, Pat, when they were just sitting around watching the news that same day. And it said that on the news that the body of a young black male had been found nearby with his pants down and showing signs of strangulation. This is terrible, 
but the media, like the cameraman, panned in on the corpse's face, oh and they gosh. saw it was their son. That is awful. Before the police even could notify them or ID the victim. Can you believe that? Sounds like media for me. Oh, my gosh. It was just... So the police didn't even get a chance to notify David's next of kin, or even ID him. Yeah, even ID him or know what's going on. They just... The media Horrific. Just got their story. Later on, Ron Dominique would expand a bit on David's murder. Now, I want to preface this when I go into the details of his crimes. We only have his word. I was going to say, right? is this another this, one like the, what was the Weeby? Yeah. That we only have their testimony? We just have his testimony because David's not here to give us his side. Right. So everything he says about David, that's utterly speculation. Let's not hold it as fact, you right. know? Okay. So- He later would say, Ron, Dominique, would say that he had met David at a local gay bar. Ron lured David out to his truck, raped him, and then strangled him before dumping his body on the side of the highway, making absolutely zero attempts to conceal him. Ron Dominique would not kill again for five more months. His next victim would be a 21-year-old young man by the name of Gary Pierre. Gary's body was discovered in St. Charles Parish on December 14th, 1997. And just like David, Gary had been sexually assaulted and strangled as well. And for one point that I want to throw in there. Yeah. For those people that have never been to Louisiana that don't know anything. Mm-hmm. When you refer to like a parish or something like it's that. It's like a county. It's a county. I'm so sorry. Yeah. So it's Louisiana a doesn't have counties. It has parishes. Right. Same thing, just a different name. So I just want everybody to know when you're talking about St. Charles Parish or all these other ones, it's the county. I'm so used to it that I, I didn't so even I. think that anybody else would be like, what's that? <laughs> I, mean, I only brought it up because I remember moving here and I was like, what the fuck is a parish, dude? I'm so like sorry. And they're like, no, it's a county. I'm, I'm like, glad you're around because I wouldn't have even thought that no one would have understood. Like, what is she talking about? Yeah, so anytime we're talking about parish, we're talking about the county. So once again, after killing um, Mr. Pierre, Ron laid low for a few months before killing again. This time, a man by the name of Larry Ranson. Larry was 38, so he was much older than Ron's first two victims, which goes to show you he wasn't too particular on how old they were. he didn't have a stereotypical type for his attacks. He just... More opportunity. He was an opportunistic killer, for sure. Little is known uh, about how exactly Ron approached and lured his victims up until this point. However, by the time of Ron's fourth killing, a clear profile would begin to form for now. I think he changes, evolves, if you will. Most of them do. In some way, shape, or form, they evolve from the beginning to the end. Right. His fourth victim would be a man by the name of Oliver or Ollie LeBanks, the first widely publicized victim of the Bayou Strangler. Although in the media, Ollie was depicted as a, quote, drifter, his friends and family insist that that was far from the case. He lived with his girlfriend, whom he had a very stable relationship with, and he regularly saw his children who lived with their mom. He had a job at a very trendy New Orleans restaurant called the New Dog Trick Cafe as okay. well, which I think is a cute name. They have cute names there. They're uh, you know, an interesting side note that I think mm-hmm. is interesting. I know people get tired of my side notes, but... Nobody does. <laughs> One person. One person does. Other people only listen for you, so... But it's interesting to me to notice that when you look at the killings, Back in seventies, eighties, nineties, even if they weren't true, they always depict the victims as, you know, runaways, hitchhikers, vagabonds. 
nowadays they never mention it like that. They always no. de- depict them. But it's interesting the the, the dynamic and the, and the thought processes. Now they always depict him as they would have depicted him as you know a good guy that worked hard, had a good girlfriend, had a good family. They depict him as the polar opposites nowadays to make it more of a. It's really the media doing it, trying to make it more of a striking. Yeah. Almost like fear. It's almost like they're trying to strike fear with their story, like saying, "Like grab your attention at least." Yeah, like, they are. This is this is what's happening with these kind of people, and then it just changes over. I'm sorry, it's just interesting. Notion. It's crazy. Well, I think it's interesting, and what I try to do is be real, like as we're gonna see with with yeah. with Ollie here. Good guy, fell on hard times, and would have straightened himself out. Right, but had the he had the opportunity. How he's a drifter and oh all yeah, these other things, they're gonna make it. Nowadays, they would have made it that he was a good guy. He was struggling, had some hard times. Yeah, had a good family. You know what I mean? Like the the, 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 the dynamic of how it's they crazy portray the victim. It's almost changed. like it's like, are you saying that he deserved it? That's what it seems like in the. 70s. It's crazy. You think about like all those killers, like and this is the nineties. We, we talked about in the seventies and eighties with the hitchhiking and all that stuff. It's almost mm-hmm. like they talk about like they deserved it for doing. Are this you shit. saying you deserve? So stupid. Anyways, um, so he worked at a trendy New Orleans restaurant called the New Dog Trick Cafe, which sounds like they had bomb food. wonder if they're still there. I'll have to look them up. The owner of the restaurant, Mar Paulson, viewed Ollie as a value member of her staff. Unfortunately, Ollie's Achilles heel was his drug problem that he was having at the time. Right. Due to his dependency... Ollie had recently been fired from the restaurant until he could get clean. In other words, Mar was like, we love you. Like, you're vital like here. you're a great employee, but this issue get you clean, got going on. Come back. We'll I need you. you. Yeah, we'll take care of you. He was we that good. Yeah. Can't rely on you right now. This, unfortunately, it sent Ollie into a bit of a depression, kind of a tailspin, a downward spiral, you would say. He was not only dependent on drugs, but he was no longer able to even finance his habit once he lost his job. Yeah, well, yeah. He's got no income. Right. And this is when Ollie began sometimes doing a little sex work on the side for money, which is something that he was honest about with his brother. They were very close. And his brother just admonished him about when he found out what Ollie was doing to supplement his lifestyle. He was like, bro, this isn't. Like, it's so dangerous. What are you doing? You yeah. know, you're better than this. He's looking out for his brother. Yeah. And it was on a fateful day at a gay bar called The Rawhide that Ollie met the pathetic-looking Ron Dominique. That is an awful name. Oh, it's awful. For a bar. A you need bar. to come up with a better one. <laughs> oh, okay. I'm sorry. When Ollie, when he looked over and he saw Ron sitting at the bar... He probably would have felt more safe approaching, I'll show you a picture of Ron, but I would have felt more safe approaching Ron than anybody. He looks so tiny, short, so he's like just a, as big around. Meek, but he's insignificant. He's non-threatening. Oh, for sure. Timid, almost like just non and and I would And I would say had charisma in the form of he made you feel comfortable and safe, not charisma like, oh, you're so attractive. Not Ted Bundy charisma. No. But charisma like, hey, I'm... This guy and you're safe here. Oh, okay. Right. So by by appearances, he was just kind of a sad looking individual, not threatening. Ollie would have approached him like this is the safest bet, right? Yeah. Unfortunately, Ollie LeBanks would not survive this encounter. So the only account of what happened after this pair met is Ron's. Unfortunately, Ollie's not here. So according to Ron Dominique, after some small talk, 
Ollie propositioned him by asking if he was up for a good time, to which Ron responded, and he says this a lot, and it's so, as my daughter would say, cringy. Ron responded, quote, I like to fool around. That is cringy. That is cringy. (laughs) Apparently, at a bar, at the bar, a deal was struck. $30 for oral sex. And with that, Ron invited Ollie to follow him to where he had parked his car nearby, which Ollie followed him. After arriving at Ron's vehicle, the two climbed into the back seat. And trigger warning for this next part, by the way. It's not, it's not nice. We're dealing with assault, sexual assault. Of course. According to Ron, and I cannot say that enough, Ollie and Ron performed oral sex on each other before Ron instructed Ollie to lie on his stomach. Now, Ollie had not agreed to this, so he, he argued. But Ron managed to forcefully flip Ollie over and rape him. Ron alleges that Ollie, who had just been sexually assaulted attempted to sexually assault him. So Ollie, the assaulted, became the assaulter. Oh, what you do to me, I'm going to do to you. Kind exactly. Of so Ollie allegedly tried to rape Ron, and this brought back very painful memories for Ron. Okay. Because he was a victim of assault in prison. Right. Infuriated, this sent Ron over the edge, so he gra- grabbed a very handy tire iron that happened to just be laying right there. Right there, just... And he began beating Ollie over the head Mm -hmm. over and over again. Unconscious, but not dead, Ron then grabbed the young man by the throat and began to squeeze the life out of him. And after a few minutes, Ollie LeBanks was dead. Horrific. His body was discovered lying face down under an overpass on October 5th, 1998 by some municipal city workers. After the body was delivered to the coroner, Ollie's fingerprints were run through the system. Now, Ollie did have a record of petty crime, so police were able to quickly identify the young man by his prints and immediately contact the family. Ollie's brother, who we mentioned earlier, his name was Michael, uh, he was especially distraught. But luckily, he had had a brief exchange with Ollie the night of his murder. So he was able to lead investigators to the Rawhide Club, okay. the last known place Ollie was thought to have gone. Yeah, I'm sure he had a lot of guilt, right? Like He did. We I'm know sure. that he was trying to intervene with his brother a little bit, yeah. but he's probably sitting there wondering, like, I, w- I wish I did more. Could I have done more? Not let him. Could I have actually, like, physically yeah. stopped him from doing this stuff? So that's, that's awful. It's going to weigh I mean, on It's you. awful in general, but it's awful. Which that, he, there's nothing he yeah, could there's, have done. There's nothing he could have really done, and it's awful yeah. that he has to carry that guilt because this sick, psychopathic fucker decided to go on a killing spree. So police went to the Rawhide Club to interview the employees and the patrons and the businesses around there. And not one person had seen anyone matching Ollie's description. It was just a dead end. We're going to see a lot of dead ends, unfortunately. And this was frustrating to police. And it became even more frustrating when they were called out to, in the middle of Ollie's investigation, they were called out to investigate the body of yet another dead young man. We're going to see him just as they're investigating one, another one comes. And that is, that crazy. is law enforcement is one of the most yeah. frustrating things. You're trying to figure oh, something I out. I can't imagine. And then it's, and then it's happening again. And you're like, what? okay, we really need to figure this catch out. Because people, people are fucking dying. Yeah. And yeah. We can't figure this out. And, it's just, oh, it's and with this case in droves, you know? Yeah. It's not like he's spacing it out at this point over five months. 
And this was this was a big hit in the gut, I'm sure, because this victim was a literal baby, 16. Mm. 16-year-old Joseph Brown's body was discovered. Just a mere f- few weeks later, the body of another African-American male was discovered, thoughtlessly discarded right outside of New Orleans on November 27th, 1998. This young man would later be identified as 18-year-old Bruce Williams. After this, for whatever reason, Ron Dominique took a two-month-long hiatus before killing 21-year-old Manuel Reed on May 30th, 1999. With Manuel, Ron demonstrated a level of viciousness and callousness, carelessness, whatever you want to call it, in the disposal of this young man's body. I don't know if this was... On purpose or just for convenience? I think it was on purpose. You mentioned a point you're like, for whatever reason, he stopped for two months. I think there was too much heat. You know what I mean? There's too much attention. So now in his mind, remember, first he said, I'm not going to do that again and have a victim. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't know what happens, but when you're talking about another level of violence disposal, he's trying to get rid of even the body now, probably, or dismember it or make it disappear. So No, he wasn't dismembered, but he was just... Tossed in the dumpster, like on top of all the trash, just like he was trash. It was way off. It, it was just insane. And I can't fathom the pain his family must have felt having a loved one brutally murdered. It's hard enough. But yeah. then to hear that they were tossed like literal trash, it's... Like literally like you throw your kitchen trash out. It's sickening. And I really think that it was just convenience. No, that sounds more that sounds more like this guy. Yeah. It's, I don't think it was very thought was, about. I was just thinking about progression and how you. you know, I mean, maybe it's possible, you know. This isn't where I was going with this. It just literally sounds like it happened down the street, and that's where you could drop him off that was close yeah. to the bayou or something. Yeah. He, he's not that deep either. No, trust not. me. Like, oh, sure. There's a dumpster. <laughs> exactly. Later on, Ron would testify that he had met Manuel at a bar and he propositioned him for oral sex, to which Manuel allegedly agreed. The pair, according to Ron, quote, fold around in his car, as he puts it. But Ron claimed once again that Manuel then attempted sodomy on him. He's trying to We're seeing a, a pattern. He's, he's trying, trying to, to become a victim. He's trying to be a victim and plead in, in, in any case, if it comes back on him, there's self-defense. And once again, this apparently caused Ron to fly off the edge. So he reached for the tire iron again and bashed Manuel over the head before ultimately strangling him to death. Just out of curiosity, is he telling these stories like while he, before he's been charged and tried, or is he telling them after he's been tried? He is, uh, he's telling them before he's been tried. So it's interesting to note that the after reason, he's been charged, right? So before he's actually been to court, so it's interesting to note that he's saying it's self defense on everything because then they can't look, he's basically denying premeditation. He's saying, I never meant to kill him or intended to kill him. I will tell you, it's he doesn't go to trial. Okay. Yeah. But I'm just saying, if he's in custody talking to them about this and hasn't been to trial, his defense of, oh, well, then he tried to attack me, so I killed him. He's trying to plead self-defense rather than say, I set out to brutally rape and murder him. The way this case plan plays out, it's not for anything other than he had to confess for self-preservation, mm-hmm. and he's just making himself look like not such a monster. That's what I'm saying. He, he's, That's he's, it. He's acting for, like it's yeah. self-defense. Yeah, I killed him, but it was they were, they were trying to you know, attack me. Rather than, this was my intent the entire time I went out. Right. Well, no more than one month later, on June 30th, the body of another young man was discovered. 
21-year-old Angel Mejia. And with all of the local men disappearing, then turning up dead, the media began to question why it was taking police so long to catch what was obviously a serial killer, rightfully so. However, the public wouldn't really get a chance to speculate for very long before there was another body found. His name was Mitchell Johnson, and he was 34 years of age. His body was found to have been, of course, sexually assaulted before being strangled to death. But this time, uh, Mitchell's wrists uh, had markings on them, signifying that he had been restrained in some type of way. However, it was the placement of his remains that baffled people. Mitchell had been dumped in the exact same spot as he had dumped the body. This isn't funny. It's just crazy to me. Mitchell was found in the exact same spot as he had dumped the body of Oliver LeBanks. Like, to the T. Yeah, which immediately He didn't even go... Which immediately tells you that law enforcement, it's more than a coincidence, somebody local, right? They're going to the same spots. So he's clearly frequenting targets in and around those areas. Because he keeps dumping in the same place. Police, yeah, police took this as a sign that the serial killer was trying to tell them hey, I'm the same guy killing all these men. But honestly, I think Ron just didn't, like we said before, didn't put a lot of thought into no, the disposal just, of his that's victims. That's before. Let me do it again. Um, right down the street. I saw an interview with a detective on the case, and he said, in hindsight, that Ron Dominique was a very simple man and didn't think too deeply into things. No, and they probably, law enforcement's probably looking at this dude, especially when they get to talk to him finally, they're probably looking at this dude like he's sophisticated because he's dodging them for... Oh, yeah. For so long, and just he's dropping. Not I mean, he's just yeah. killing people left and right. So they're like, he's really a mastermind here. And this was after all the years of all these other masterminds. It turns out he was just lucky and simple. It was a nice way of calling him a dumbass, and I would agree. <laughs> but some movement in the case started to happen after Mitchell's body was discovered. See, apparently Mitchell was spotted right before his death, hanging out with, quote, a man in his 30s with puffy cheeks and a receding hairline. That's what he was described as. It's the first description they've had. So, And with some eyewitness help, a sketch artist was able to make a composite sketch that was released to the press in hopes that someone might recognize him. Usually composite sketches kind of make me giggle. Like back in the day, the ones we talk about. Oh, this one yeah. was really good, like actually. The old school ones of like the Unabomber that are famous. Oh, that, was... that looks like any dude with a hoodie and his sunglasses on. Yeah. But this one was pretty spot on. The pro- it looked very much like Ron, but the problem with that is Ron kind of looks like everyone. Do you know like, what I mean? There's nothing like significant to be like, oh, I know who that is. Yeah, like when if you say that's Ron, you're like, yeah, it is, but it's also Steve. It's also <laughs> right. He's like not like he's not the only guy. Yeah, with a receding hairline in Louisiana. There's not anything, and I'm really not trying to be mean. There's just not anything special about this. He's just ordinary. Yeah, he's extremely ordinary. Which like, makes him, unfortunately, perfect which, for this like job. physically looking-wise, he's, like, extremely ordinary. You'd never notice this guy in a crowd, you know? So the sketch wasn't a whole lot of help at all. However, the sketch was enough to spook Ron. Oh, his picture's on there. He's like, oh. Shortly after its release, he abruptly quit his job with the city, and he drove his mobile home that he was living in to Homemont, Louisiana, where his sister lived. Yeah, something near that town, because he, he, he's not the smartest. He thinks someone's going to recognize him, so he's got to go. He has a sister named Lainey. She's married. She has a daughter. And she owns some land out in Homa. And she allowed Ron to park his trailer there, even hook his 
water and gas up. Why wouldn't you? Perfect. It's just your brother. Ron immediately found employment in uh, Homa doing some labor for a company called Caro Produce, where he was viewed as a, quote, polite but simple man, mostly ignored by those around him, end quote. <laughs> the guy that came to work did his little thing in the corner and no one bothered him. He didn't bother anybody. Exactly. Now, if he had stopped his killing spree, then he most likely would have never been caught. But that's not the case. Murders would soon start. Yeah, and they're amazingly gonna, occurring in Homa. And they're gonna draw they're gonna draw a resemblance when they're like, we had all these bodies that kept dropping up the same way in you know, St. Charles Parish. Now all of a sudden you're down the street and they're popping up over here and they stopped over there. Gee, I wonder. You know what I mean? I do wanna say that I read a book and then watched a documentary, and on the documentary it showed a map of this is um like another part of his killing life when he moved to Homa. It showed where his trailer was parked and where he dumped the bodies. And we are talking literal, like, I want to say a block. I mean, it sh- he didn't even really try. It is crazy to me. I didn't, I had no idea. That's wild. Yeah. And wherever he moved, just almost surrounding his little trailer, that's where the bodies were. And nobody ever kind of caught it because there's so much land out there, you know? And it's not like it's. Odd to see a trailer on a piece of land out there. Not at all. It's just a very common thing in some of those parts of Louisiana. So on New Year's Eve, 1999, Michael Vincent vanished and his lifeless body was discovered the very next day, January 1st, 2000, the turn of the millennium. Later on, Ron Dominique would testify that he had picked Michael up and after the pair had, quote, fooled around. God, I wish he'd quit saying that. It's so so gross. So creepy. Michael took things once again, according to Ron, too far. And then he threatened to call the police on Ron. And in turn, Ron killed him. Remember, he's not going to jail. He's not going to jail. And he's not, he didn't intend to kill anybody. They all attack him. He's a victim. Oh my God. He's a victim. Poor guy. The autopsy of Michael's body was conducted on January 3rd. And the coroner found that whoever Michael's killer was, He had apparently been very careful not to leave any evidence behind, and thus no new leads arose with the discovery of Michael's body. However, the good people of Louisiana would get a much-needed break from the atrocities of Ron Dominique. He would take his longest break from murder since beginning his killing career in 1996. He took two whole years off. Two years. Why? It's hard to say. Perhaps he was trying to walk the straight and narrow. I don't know. But two years off, he wasn't moving. Like, I have have nothing. It's kind of hard to explain this dude's actions in in many of the things he does. Very much so. I keep thinking I have a beat on it, and then it's just, no, No. it's not even that complex. I'm not even going to try with this. Like He probably just stopped. Well, all your speculation was my original speculation, and then I'm like, yep, nope, nope. That's not not it either. It's It's not that deep. That's how it is. He's just kind of. It goes to the beat of his own drum, you know? So during the time that he wasn't killing, he got a job working as a Domino's pizza delivery driver. <laughs> and to the rest of the world, he just appeared as your average working citizen. He was pleasant for the most part, quiet, never attracted any undue attention to himself. But underneath the easygoing facade, he was obviously an enraged individual. That's crazy because I just thinking about this. 
back then there was no like I get on my app and I order Domino's. Like you called your local Domino's, mm-hmm. placed your order, or you went down there. Placed your in two thousand, there was yeah, oh yeah, and they would deliver it to you. But you interacted with the delivery, right? So you're probably talking about a couple of so delivery people. So, you, so many people probably had this dude deliver pizza to their house. Oh, had no God, idea. he came to my house. Yeah. And like they see him get arrested later on. They're like, that's the dude who's been delivering pizza here for two years. Like, mm-hmm. what the, what is happening? In May of 2000, Dominique got into an altercation of some sort. Not sure exactly what happened. But it did earn him a misdemeanor charge of disturbing the peace. I kind of wish there was more on that because this dude has not been. I have more on his second, the next one. Okay, I was going to say there's not a whole lot about him like fighting or being angry that we can, yeah, get outside well, of his, his 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 assaults and killings. I mean, he's not walking around picking fights. Two years later, in 2002, he did pick this fight. Okay, it's crazy. Well, uh, I don't know. Maybe I'll take that back. Dominique got into another altercation at a Mardi Gras festival. This time he hauled off and slapped a woman across the face. Uh, To kind of break it down for you, Patrick, what happened was, I guess she honked the horn and she was driving a car. She honked the horn and there was a woman walking her baby crossing the street in front of her car and it woke the baby up and the baby started crying and this pissed Ron off for whatever reason, okay. and he ran up to the car, and they started yelling at each other. And he was yelling at her to apologize, and she probably was like, "F you!" And yeah. he was like, just like whack, is? and then she called the cops. Wow. So I don't know. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's he but, like he's a Karen. <laughs> yes, but I can speculate because he hasn't killed in two years. He's just angry. So he's, that's what I was about to say. Like, he's all pent up and angry and stuff. So he but he's also a Karen. <laughs> but maybe because he hasn't been killing and that's his release, he hasn't been doing it for two years. He's all built up. Like, ah! That's what you get mad about? I mean, I would be mad too, but I wouldn't like haul off and slap him. I mean, I mean, I've seen people get mad for worse. You know, for, <laughs> it's for Mardi Gras too. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah, it's Mardi Gras in Louisiana. So everybody's hammered. So he was slapped with another misdemeanor charge and placed into a special work release program. Okay. The law wasn't too hard on him, however. By October of the same year, a judge determined that he had paid his debt to society and he was able to go back to his normal job, his normal life. That's what the work release program would have been because he'd never been in trouble before. Yeah. Da, 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 and it's a minor, it's a misdemeanor offense. Like, don't yeah. smack people. You know what I mean? We don't hit people, we don't, do we, Ron? We smack people. We just Jeez. don't do that. Apparently, Ron had some deep-seated rage in living his boring life. Not being a serial killer was for the birds. But that's what I'm saying. Like yeah. That's probably what got him to trigger. And he's probably like, you know why I'm that angry? I snapped because I'm killing people. So this wasn't working for Ron. He wasn't long before. He was like, you know what? It's time. I go kill again. He needs a violent release. But I'm going to shake things up a little bit this time. Before he had killed all of his victims in the backseat of his vehicle. That's That's where he did it where he did all the killing. Now he decided he needed more space. So he asked his brother-in-law if he could park his trailer in the middle of the Dixie shipyard where his brother-in-law worked. Of course, his brother-in-law was like, yeah, sure. I don't care. So Ron, and the Dixie shipyard's huge, by the way. And it was, he was parked in the middle of this field that was just miles. Nobody would ever see him. Oh, yeah. So Ron moved his mobile home to an isolated field in the middle of the shipyard, and he began to make plans and premeditate his future murders. Oh, he's actually planning now. Okay. He's 
planning to some degree. He kind of has to get his system down, you know? Ron's first victim upon his return to killing was Kenneth Fitzgerald Jr. Kenneth's nude body would be discovered in the middle of a sugarcane field, lying face down, almost posed, with his rear end propped up in the air. Mm-hmm. His wrists had abrasions indicating that he had been bound and marks on his neck indicating strangulation. Right. During his autopsy, it was discovered that Kenneth had been sexually assaulted. A rape kit was then performed and shipped off from forensic analysis. While the test results were still pending, another body turned up. Lovely. 26-year-old Anoka Jones. On the day that Anoka had disappeared, he had left his home to buy a pack of cigarettes. As he was riding his bike to the store, he was intercepted by Ron, who had been cruising around. Probably stalking the neighborhood. Yeah, looking for a victim. Apparently, the two had a rapid-fire conversation, and Ron informed Anoka that what he could do in order to make some extra cash. Anoka ultimately agreed. He apparently pedaled his bike back home, where his girlfriend, Shelly, saw him briefly. Anoka informed her that he was going to go out for a smoke, and he would be back soon. And that was the last time she would ever see him again. Ron took Anoka to his trailer and somehow convinced him to be tied up before sexually assaulting him and strangling him to death. And side note, we will get into how he convinced these men to be tied up in the future. Yeah, we'll get into that kind of towards the end. So then Ron covered up Anoka's body with a blanket and drove towards New Orleans where he would drop the young man's body off just under an overpass in nearby Butte, leaving, lying him face down. Of course, the body was discovered quickly. I mean, it's not like he took any time to conceal him. Right. So he was able to be discovered quickly. And they ran the victim's prints and immediately got an ID. Upon speaking to Anoka's inner circle, who were all just besides them, beside themselves with grief, They were ultimately just unable to give the police any information about where Anoka went that fateful day that he disappeared or who he may have been with. Police hit another dead end, leaving Ron Dominique free to kill. And kill he did. The body of 19-year-old Detrell Woods would be Ron's next victim. His body was discovered rapidly decomposing in the Louisiana heat by two young men riding their dirt bikes. Ron's next victim was a drifter known as Larry Matthews. After taking Larry to his trailer, raping and murdering him, Ron took his body to a pre-planned location, despite Tropical Storm Matthew absolutely battering the Louisiana coastline, causing flooding and gale force winds. But that didn't stop Ron. He'll just push through it, right? Yes. Later on, Larry Matthews' soaking wet body was discovered. Initially, it was thought that Larry's death was an accident, perhaps a casualty of Tropical Storm Matthew. But the abrasions to the man's throat and buttocks told a different story. Guys, as Larry's body was literally still being processed by the medical examiner, yet another body turned up, a man named Michael Barnett was found stuffed inside a storage unit. 
An employee of a storage facility went out to investigate a pungent stench coming from the unit, and he was greeted by a grisly sight. I'm sure. Michael's nude corpse was laying sprawled out on his back on the floor. Like, I can't even imagine. According to Ron's confession later, he had picked up Michael at a gas station after Michael allegedly approached him, claiming that he needed to make some money. Ron offered the man $20 to return with him to his trailer, and Michael agreed. Ron claimed that after fooling around, Michael asked for more money than what was agreed to, and after Ron declined, Michael threatened to call the police. Mm, okay, there it is. So Ron couldn't have that, so he strangled Michael before loading him up in his truck and taking the body to a storage unit. Now, he was there for a while, so he had obviously killed Michael before, like, a few victims before well, it doesn't, his last victim. Yeah, it takes a little few days for the smell to start Unfortunately, getting like yeah. That. Guys, in an odd twist of fate, or whatever you want to call it, I don't know what to call it really, Ron's next victim would be a man by the name of Leon Lorette, Anoka Jones' best friend. Oh, my man. In fact, Leon was questioned in Anoka's disappearance, but little did police know that he would soon become the killer's next victim. Wow. Leon was unfortunately found strangled. Ron Dominique later admitted to killing Leon with an extension cord. Oh. Crazy. Shortly after the discovery of Leon's body, the Homa Courier, the local newspaper, wrote a piece on Leon's murder. However, the general public seemed to remain shockingly indifferent due to the fact that the serial killer seemed to prey on what they perceived to be drifters or addicts or kind of the down and outs. Yeah. In other words, as long as we aren't amongst the down and outs, then we're safe. And I wholly believe this to be true because, like I said, living in the area during this time, these killings did not get the coverage that, that, like, Derek Todd Lee received. And I believe it was largely in part that Lee chose not just women to murder, but women who were not so-called drifters or whatnot. Like, you know, he would break into homes and pose as like a home repairman, you know? that comes back to my point of way back, those those years and way back before, it was always drifters or something. You wonder if somewhere along the time, somebody had the same thought you're thinking and changed the narrative of how they report these. So making it scary to people. Making, Mm -hmm. you know, as long as it's not the bad ones. Well, this one was, you know, a good student and a good friend and, Okay, so these are normal people, so maybe we should be scared. Maybe maybe at some point, somebody decided to flip the narrative on that. So it's like, it's crazy. Murder is murder, and it all needs to be covered. All victims need to be remembered, as far as we're concerned. Anyways. No, 100%. It wasn't long before the bodies of four more men were discovered, and we're talking back-to-back. Wow. Days, like a day apart. 32-year-old August Terrell Watkins... 23-year-old Kurt Cunningham, 28-year-old Alonzo Hogan, and 17-year-old Wayne Smith. Wow. All bodies bore the telltale signs of the Bayou Strangler or the Bayou Killer, depending on your preference. I prefer asshole. <laughs> I was about to say, I prefer a piece of shit, but... <laughs> and it, it just seemed like this guy was never going to be caught, you know? And Homa's not huge. Not a big... It's not huge. It's not itty-bitty, but it's not very big. Each led the police... 
Uh, each lead the police followed led them to just another dead end. However, tragedy on another level would soon befall the good people of Louisiana. On August 29, 2005, Hurricane Katrina made landfall one of the deadliest natural disasters to strike the U.S. in recent history. To give you an idea, if you're not from the U.S. uh, and haven't heard of Hurricane Katrina, nearly 2,000 people lost their lives during this devastating storm. Many people fled the hurricane and traveled out of state for safety, but not Ron. No act of God was going to stop him. The moment the storm blew over, before the next one hit, because there was a few back-to-back storms, right? Like three that year. Yeah. The moment the storm Katrina blew over, he killed 40-year-old Chris DeVille. And Chris was unlike Ron's other victims in many ways. It's true that many of Ron's victims had some kind of criminal background and that they tended to drift from place to place. Not all of them, but some of them. However, Chris was a very upstanding member of the community, and his brother was a police officer on the local police force. Okay. That's, and that's not going to sit well. One thing that this did was garner police attention. They, yeah. were, they were pissed. It's a c- brother of a cop. I can tell you that this case was just solved, right? Not solved, but like it was going to be solved right after Chris was murdered. Well, anytime it infects, sure. directly affects the law enforcement, it, they're going to yeah, get everything they It's like, okay. <laughs> you mess with one of ours, we're going to give you everything we got. With the murder of Christaville, police decided to take more of a proactive approach to catching this monster, and it's a really good approach. I, I'm sad somebody didn't think of it sooner because I can't tell you I would have thought of this, but pretty good. So Let's see what they do. They recruited parole officer Tom Lambert to talk to his list of parolees and ask them if they had if they had had any quote strange strange sexual encounters with anyone recently. Right. And after a lot of asking around, he had a list, right, of 30 parolees. After some asking around, Tom struck pay dirt with one of his parolees. I'm not sure if he wants his real name used because I've seen interviews with him. Each interview, he uses a different name. Yeah, well, so doesn't. we're going to call him Bill. <laughs> That's what I came up with. Bill, works. <laughs> Bill told, told Officer Tom Lambert a crazy story. It is crazy. It's one so crazy. That you just might believe it. <laughs> okay. He said that he had been walking down the road when a truck pulled up beside him. Inside was what Bill described as a fat white guy. Ron Dominique. Spoiler alert. <laughs> he asked Bill where he was headed. And after some friendly chit chat, Bill said he didn't feel the least bit intimidated by this man. Like at all. But he was a little taken aback. When the man asked him if he was interested in having sex with a hot white woman. Okay. Well, Ron then held up a picture of a really beautiful young woman. By the way, that young woman would later be determined to be his own niece. His sister, Lainey's daughter, who is very beautiful, is very beautiful. And uh, Ron told Bill, yeah, you see this girl, she'd really like to, quote, make it. With a guy like you. Ugh. Anyways. She didn't say full round. Well, Bill, I don't know why, but he took the bait. He's like, I guess I don't have anything else better to do, right? Random dudes that show you a picture of a girl like this girl wants to have sex with you. You're like, oh, awesome. Sweet. Well, then again, I'm not surprised. 
Well, he didn't have anything better to do. So Bill's like, sure. So he hopped in the car with the this guy feeling pretty lucky that he was being chauffeured off somewhere to have sex with such a beautiful woman, right? Not weird at all. However, Bill stated that he started to feel a little weirded out when Ron mentioned on the way that the woman he was about to hook up with, you know, she's been through some shit. She's been a victim of domestic violence, and she preferred her men to be hogtied before she, like, came in to have sex with them. It was odd, but... Your physics of that don't add up. But Bill... But Bill entered Ron's trailer against his better judgment anyways. But at what point are you not like, this is probably a bad idea? It was at this point, right here. Okay, good. At least he comes to that. As soon as Bill walked in Ron's trailer, he noticed that the trailer was, first of all, freaking disgusting. It was like a freaking pigsty. Like, cleanliness was not his forte, apparently. Second of all, it was filled like the whole floor all the way up to the ceiling was filled with stack and stacks of very raunchy gay pornography magazine magazines, excuse me. And Bill started to kind of put two and two together. Like there's probably no hot chick going to come in and bang me right now. Yeah. So he marched himself right out the front door and left the trailer on foot. And as the kids would say, he yeeted right the fuck out. If he had allowed Ron to tie him up, I'd be telling you a very different story about Bill. But um, the fact that he just walked out the front door, Ron was not one for confrontation. First of all, he's not physically able. That's right, why he tied his victims up. The only time he's going to fight is when he's got the advantage. He was not going to tussle with a larger man either. So he just let him go. And what's more... Bill remembered exactly where the trailer was. <laughs> and he was able to lead police directly to Ron Dominique. And he didn't decide to move his trailer after that. He's just a simple man. What can we say? I don't know. Nothing. Well, Dominique was eventually brought in for questioning. They interrogated him first about the encounter with our Bill. And, of course, Ron made it seem like it was a consensual encounter gone wrong and nothing more. Right. Investigators asked Ron to volunteer a, a local buckle sample. Isn't that how you say it, a buckle sample? Like that? Oh, I just call it a cheek swab. Cheek swab. So investigators asked Ron to volunteer a buckle sample to compare against some of the evidence that they had gathered from his victims. Mm-hmm. And surprisingly, Ron agreed eventually. You're probably not thinking they're trying to connect him to anything else. Well, he said, I don't have anything to hide. I don't know what's going on here. Whatever. He's, that's he's fine. He's probably not thinking past this Bill yeah. episode. He's probably not thinking about all his other stuff. They're talking about Bill. He's like. He doesn't think a lot about the future. That's what I'm saying. Like, he's like, I don't, what do you mean? <laughs> nothing happened with Bill. Well, Ron's DNA was sent off for testing. And unfortunately, due to it being the early 2000s of it all, the results would take a while to come back. Yeah. And unfortunately, during that time, they had absolutely nothing to hold him on. So they had to let Ron go for the time being. Although they did keep him under, and I say this loosely, police surveillance. What it probably meant is they probably didn't have surveillance on him 24-7. They They did. Oh, they did. They did. Yeah, I was going to say he probably was just number one suspect. While the police were awaiting the results of the buckle swab. Two more young men would turn up dead. 
21-year-old Nick Pellegrin and 27-year-old Christopher Stutterfield. Christopher would be the Bayou Killer's final victim. Some police 24-hour surveillance. Sleeping. I, I mean, gotta sleep, right? Or maybe they just weren't taking it that seriously. You know what I mean? Must have not. It's just Why insane. Why are we surveilling this dude that didn't do shit? You'll kind of, yeah. But I found out that it was 24-hour surveillance when you see kind of where they find him living when they go back to get him. Yeah. You'll see. So as he anticipated, the results of the buckle swab came back and revealed that Ron Dominique was a likely match to the mitochondrial DNA recovered from many of his crime scenes. Unfortunately, without nuclear DNA, there couldn't be a definitive 100% match. However, the results proved that the killer was either Ron Dominique or a close relative of his, right? Right. Police decided to take their chances and file charges against Ron and just pray that those charges would stick in court. They had to get him off the streets ASAP. They probably would have waited for the nuclear. Well, they probably would have waited for the nuclear DNA if bodies weren't still falling, falling, but they didn't have time. They also might have thought he's so dumb that if we charge him, maybe he'll confess to it because we have DNA. Exactly right. He doesn't know that it's the wrong DNA. Officers went to arrest him, but found that he had moved out of his trailer. Ron Dominique was now living at a homeless shelter as the noose began to tighten around his neck. He claimed that he wanted to spare his sister and her family from the burden of the constant police surveillance. It's valiant of him. Oh, right? such a nice guy. Ron Dominique was arrested without incidents that day. In the end, he confessed to all of the murders he committed, not out of the goodness of his heart, but to avoid the death penalty. Yeah. That's yeah. why, and that's why I went. My point when I went back is that mm-hmm. everything was they attacked me. I was the victim. I'm the victim. It's self defense. The only bright spot in this story is that because he confessed, there was no trial, so the victims or the families of the victims didn't have to be put through that. You know, Ron never once seemed remorseful either. He was just sorry that he got caught. He issued a very half-assed apology to the victim's families. He blamed his killing spree on the 1996 rape case that landed him in jail in the first place. Because of that time in jail, he was sexually assaulted while serving time. For sexually assaulting. He said, and I quote, I proved I was innocent and got out. I was angry. I did something to some of the guys And then I got raped by a guy, and I protected myself, and I killed him. And then another one tried to rape me and stab me, and I killed him. I then took all the anger out on the rest of the guys, meaning the victims. And I shouldn't have took it out on them, end quote. That was his apology, by the way. It's a a list of grievances, basically, against the victims and all the people who hurt him before. Well, because he was a victim. There was never any accountability. Because of his time in prison. Wouldn't have it happen. It was just a. Can you imagine being a family member and sitting here listening to that crap? I, I would. It would. I would be over the bench. I'm calling everybody I know to know if they have a cousin (laughs) or somebody that's in prison that I can get a message to. Like, I have a favor. Your commissary card will be stacked. (laughs) We'll stack that bitch. (laughs) Let's talk. Anyways, in 2008, Ronald received eight. Life sentences without the possibility of parole. He ain't getting out. 
He is currently serving time at the Louisiana State Penitentiary in West, West Feliciana Parish. And he's still alive. That ain't no nice place either. Have fun. Not a nice prison. He is just, you know, I haven't even seen an interview with him or anything. I don't know if he's done any. I'm sure he has. I already, I can't even, you know how when you listen to interviews with like Ted Bundy and you can kind of see the charm there, Mm -hmm. how like if you weren't privy to his true self, you could see the charm. You could just tell this guy's like, why are you here? And I was about no to say, one wants you around. That's probably why there's no real interviews because they were so unimpressive, underwhelming, and boring that they were like, we can't even use this for like publicity because he's just like, oh, yeah. <laughs> and that's all he said. It's like, okay, good interview. Thanks. And to cause so the most underwhelming, unassuming man could cause this level of damage oh, in, a, in a community. Level. I mean, it's just insane to me. Over 20 people killed. Yeah. Just discarded like a piece of trash. That's big numbers, too. 23? Yeah, there's no small number. It's not not a little spree. And this is not over a six-month period. This is like a decade's worth. But because of just, you, he's just someone you want to pass by, like, loser, you know? Not trying to be nasty, but he's a serial killer, so who cares? But it's because of, you are able to walk by him and be like, God, that he's able to get away with it for so long because you don't even think about him. Well, yeah, but he's also, you know, in some ways he fits a mold in that, you know, the true crime world because how many of those people that committed so many of these horrific acts, not maybe your serial killers, but think about other people that were just, no one ever saw them. You know what I mean? They were just, and that's part of the problem with some of these people. Like it immediately strikes the same time period, same, 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 like just normal, like just no one even notices you in this. It makes me think of like Dylan and what's his face uh, from Columbine. Like no one even knew who they were. They were just there. Like, they're in the background. Do you remember? Um, That's what this guy seems to me. The butcher baker. Oh yeah, because no one. But he was different. Like everybody liked him because he was just. A they liked member. him, but he was just kind of there. Yeah, I'm just saying this. They, this guy reminds me of like a, like Dylan and what's his face from Columbine. They, yeah. No one. They were just. They were like literally in the background of life. Like, no one even noticed yeah. they were standing there. Like they would yeah. walk by and be like, they were there. Like kind of. I know. And it's sad, you know, because I'm sure at one point he was a child that needed love and attention and a friend. Yeah. But I don't know. And he suffered a little bit of trauma when he was a child. We don't know how much that traumatized him. Yeah. We, I just. We don't know how much it traumatized him as a kid to have his dad take him over to see his brother-in-law. And, that would have traumatized me. And, and <laughs> his mom is having sex with his uncle. Like, and, oh, my God. That would have. Ended me. That's what I'm saying. We don't know how much damage that caused him. It could have caused him to stop, you know, mentally growing. We could have stopped him to stop emotionally growing. It, it could have just. For sure. And, uh, but uh, it's crazy to me how I literally was living not far from here and never heard of Oh, dude, of you were living like 20 minutes from there. Like it's, 30, or no. Well. Like an hour. Hour and a half. Three and a half. Three and a half hours. Homo? Mm-hmm. It wasn't like Charles at oh, the time. Okay. But. I keep thinking you were farther east. I so three hours away is nothing. Yeah, I mean, I just can't believe I I didn't hear about him. You know, it's nuts. Yeah. Like everybody should have heard. No, we've covered a couple in like the Philly, Jersey type areas. Yeah. You know, it's like how did I after not know I was this? And I never heard about it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But now we know. But back then, at the same time, we didn't. The world didn't publicize these horrific crimes the way they do now. Mm, yeah. 
Like they did it locally, you did it locally, you did it locally. If it got too big or if it left your area, you got to a wider audience. Nowadays, it's viral mm-hmm. as soon as it happens. Yeah. So it's, it's that whole information spread. Yeah. Well, that's all we got for you today, folks. <laughs> that's it. Just that. I, I do want to say I almost forgot. Happy Mother's Day. Happy Mother's Day. To, to all everyone. you. Dog moms. That are still Plant moms. Human moms. Alien moms. Just all you mamas out there. All you moms. You all matter and we love you all. Y'all matter because y'all make the world go round. The rest of us just kind of follow your lead. (laughs) But I hope you get spoiled. You deserve it. We love you so much. And we will see you back here next time on Evil Pudding. Be good to each other. Bye.